My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Did you know that the clitoris was once considered a deformity? Researchers at the University of Cambridge found a 16th century anatomy book in which a triangle was cut where the vagina was supposed to be. The entire vulva was literally erased or censored from anatomy diagrams for centuries. And still today, so many of us have questions. Today you're going to hear from someone who went searching for her own answers about sexuality early on and decades later, turned her pursuit for pleasure into an empire that helps so many people cultivate the sex lives and relationships they desire. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. I recorded today's interview with Joan Price at a conference recently. Joan's father was a gynecologist, yet even she had no language for or knowledge of the clitoris for quite some time. Talking with her was like walking through sexual empowerment history. We talked about the 50s, a time when many psychiatrists, counselors, and gynecologists worried that women were failing to perform in the bedroom and were considered, quote, frigid for reasons that had nothing to do, of course, with their abilities and everything to do with inequality and lacking education. We chatted about her coming of age, so to speak, through the sexual revolution of the 60s, what feminism brought to sex and pleasure in the 70s, all the way up to finding the love of her life, a story that had us both in tears. Joan, Dr. Megan, and I will also answer a question for a listener who's newly divorced and wants to know if she's going about dating in ideal ways or if she's perhaps standing in her own way a bit. I think many of us can relate to this conundrum. A quick reminder before we dive in to sign up for occasional Girl Boner Extras at augustmclaughlin.com. I send updates about once a month, often featuring news and goodies I haven't shared anywhere else yet. You can also now pre-order my Girl Boner book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or request it from your local bookstore. It officially releases August 7th. That is 69 days from today, as fate would have it. If you've been listening for a while, you know I've had this book in mind since I first launched Girl Boner on my blog over five years ago. The book features stories from my own journey, expert tips from folks you've heard right here on Girl Boner Radio, some seriously creepy history about masturbation, but also some really fun and saucy tips there, journaling exercises, and so much more. Search for Girl Boner on Amazon or find direct links at augustmclaughlin.com forward slash books. Now I'm so pleased to introduce you all to Joan Price, an author, speaker, and advocate for ageless sexuality. By the media, she's been called a senior sexpert, the beautiful face of senior sex, and her personal favorite, wrinkly sex kitten. You can find her award-winning zesty blog at nakedatourage.com. I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal background. What did you learn about sex and sexuality when you were a kid? Oh my God, (laughs) almost nothing. When I was growing up, and this was in the 1950s, I'm 74 now, my sex education consisted of 
this is how girls get pregnant, and here's why you shouldn't do it. Now, I gotta add something to this. My father was a gynecologist, and this is what he thought was all of sex education for me. Oh, how interesting. I know. There was nothing about pleasure. There was nothing about arousal. There was nothing that, there was nothing to let me know why I would ever even want to do such a silly thing. Wow. I know. And there was nothing in school? No, sort oh, of. Oh, school was about menstruation. We were divided, the boys and the girls. I'm not sure what the boys learned. <laughs> I should ask. Yeah. I should ask. What that is a good learned. question, actually. But what the girls learned was about menstruation and how the egg travels uh, from the ovaries to the uterus and if it gets and so on. Um, that, there, it wasn't sex education. It was sex fear. It was sex lack of information. I mean, it was really terrible. And to make it even worse, and if it could get worse than that, I knew there had to be something more to sex than that. So I went looking in my father's medical books. Do you know something that was not in any of my father's medical books? The clitoris. You're kidding me. No, because I know that, well, I went looking at many stages of my life. But at one point I went looking when I was 17 and I had just had sex with my boyfriend. And I didn't understand why, why what we called petting was much more exciting than actual intercourse. And I thought, is there something wrong with me? So I went looking in my medical books to see what I didn't know. And if there had been this word clitoris that I didn't know, I would have noticed it. It wasn't there. Wow. It wasn't there. That's so fascinating. So when you had your first sexual experience and you'd only learned negative things, Mm-hmm. Were you afraid? Was it a, Did you expect it to be pleasurable? Or I know by that time, the hormones are at least giving you some clue, like, oh, I'm excited. Well, there was a context to this because my boyfriend and I had been what we called necking and petting <laughs> for two years already. We thought we were going to wait till marriage because, of course, we wouldn't get married. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing any of this. But from 10th grade into somewhere in in 12th grade, we were having these make-out sessions in his car, and I was getting very excited, but never, there was never an orgasm. We didn't really know how to do that for me. It was a little more obvious for him. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's what, okay, I get it. And then when we, and I thought, well, when we finally have intercourse, then it's all will be revealed. But instead, I had been very excited to that point, and then it was, well, I'm still a little excited, although most of it was died down, but mm, that's it. Anticlimatic in a couple of different ways. So, yay! So, so aclimatic, actually. And I thought, well, if this is all there is about it, why is it such a big fuss? I love the intimacy of it. I like the excitement of our foreplay and quotes. I'm doing all these finger quotes that, of course, mm-hmm. the audience can't see. Uh, but I didn't know. I didn't know what it would take for me to have more than that. Women who did not have a climax through intercourse were considered frigid. 
Now, isn't that an awful word? I had no idea. That's I've heard the word, That's and what I frigid meant. thought it meant you weren't interested in sex, which mm-hmm. also is not a positive term. But wow, it meant we did not have have orgasms through. Well, it was only called climax. Orgasm was one of those dirty words we didn't say. We did not have we did not climax during intercourse, so we were frigid. We were defective, in other words. Oh, which surely only made matters worse because you're no longer relaxed when you're aroused. Well, and right, and and we know now in this day and age, and being sex educators, that about seventy five percent of women do not reach orgasm that way. But we didn't know any better. Yeah. And I remember. <laughs> should we be revealing all this? We should. We should. We? Let's dig. Because let's dig into it. We need to know this in stuff. That era, you don't know how much we had to overcome. I remember at one point having a real hot and heavy time with my boyfriend. And by now, I was in my freshman year of college, and I still didn't understand what it would take. And neither did he. It was his first. I was his first also, although he was a little older. And at one point, I was getting so excited, I started rubbing my own clitoris. And he brushed my hand away like, no, I'm the one pleasuring you. Wow. But not that he was touching me. He was like this, screwing me. Wow. Because he felt that that's what sex was probably. That's what sex was. I'm supposed to penetrate you. Yes. Yeah. And what is she doing? No, 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 no. I'm doing it. Wow. And no conversation probably because there wasn't any. Neither of us even knew how to talk about it. We didn't have the knowledge. We didn't have the words. And if we went looking, which we did, we went looking. Well, who do you ask? You don't ask it. You sure don't ask your guidance counselor, right? <laughs> and there was no one to ask. Certainly not parents. Parents weren't supposed to know we were doing it. It wow. was really, um, it was such a primitive time in so many ways. It's interesting to me how a lot has changed and a lot has stayed the same. Yeah. It took. A boy, a classmate, when I was in my sophomore year in college, and I'd broken up with the other boyfriend for other reasons that had nothing to do with sex, and I was dating someone else, and he said, so, let me give you an orgasm. I said, well, I, I don't have them. No, I, I, oh, I've never failed. He said, it was still all about the men, right? Oh, my it goodness. It was still all about the men and what they could do to you or for you. But at least he had it right in how to do it. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> okay, I want to keep doing I want to do this a lot. I want to do this with a lot of people. I want to see who else knows this. <laughs> so he found the clitoris. Yes. Wow. Yeah, he already knew. Somehow he had learned. In my work, I talked to other people, of course, in my age group. I'm 74 now, feeling quite happy sexually and and enjoying it very much but I pe- I talked to other people in my age group who are not who grew up as I did but then never unlearned that or whose partners never unlearned that mm. I know it was a very repressive era and fortunately we can unlearn our upbringing we can and we can teach those messages to people of your generation yes so that you don't ever have to go through what we did and have something to look forward to because there's still this idea that our eggs shrivel up if we have a vulva our eggs shrivel up and then it's all over 
Well, you know, the eggs don't have much to do with orgasm anyway. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> so our eggs may shrivel up, but our, our, our responses don't have to. Our um, enjoyment of stimulation, our sense of pleasure, all of that can blossom for us. Different kinds of blossoms than when we were 20 or 30. So we have to enjoy having the whole floral bouquet and not think, oh, but my rose is in a... Yeah, but look what's in the bouquet now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So a recent clinical study that analyzed the sexual lives and beliefs regarding sex of over 600 women ages 40 to 65 for eight years found that women who have positive attitudes about sex are three times more likely to stay pleasurably sexually active, however they define that, during middle age than other women, regardless of physical factors linked with low libido like menopause. A 2012 study out of the University of Adelaide showed that overall health has a much bigger impact on sexual activity, including masturbation, than the natural gradual decline of sex hormones. That's really interesting, right? Older individuals of all genders also tend to prioritize intimacy more later on in life, which I think is pretty groovy. It seems to me that after menopause, we might enjoy a sense of heightened freedom around sex since we're no longer worried about pregnancy. I think so many of us have had that fear off and on through our lives. I brought this up to Joan, adding that obviously it's still important to use safer sex practices. She said, actually, it's not so obvious to many people of her generation. Take these faces that are crestfallen because I've just told them they have to use condoms and then put a smile on them again when we talk about how sensual that can be. Mm, that's very beautiful. Joan also said that while getting tested for STIs is important. We have it in the wrong order, in my view. Mm -hmm. We think, okay, I want to have sex with this person, therefore let's get tested. No, let's just decide we will use safer sex all the time with anyone. Because part of dating again, whether it's at your age or my age, is exploring who's out there. And we may think, oh, this person really turns me on. And great, okay, have some wonderful sex with that person. But then in, in a month, you might think, yeah, but he's sort of boring. Or, but who else is out there? Or I'm not ready to, to be monogamous. I want to explore. I want to see where my wild child lives these days. Mm. Or maybe I've just come out of a long-term marriage. I haven't had lots of experience. Let me get that experience now. It's not too late. Or I've, um, I've been single a long time and I want to stay. There's so many different ways that we can be dating and having sex with people now. So my advice to people is always have safer, use safer sex barriers with everyone every time until such time as you meet someone, decide you want to be in an exclusive relationship. If that happens, it doesn't have to happen. If it does, at that time, both of you get, set, get tested and, um, and then decide from there. The problem with the emphasis on what are your test results is... If someone, okay, let's say I am dating someone new and I say my policy is we use condoms every time. I use condoms every time with everyone. And he says, oh, but I've just been tested. What am I hearing from that? I am hearing from that. He wants 
sex without a condom. Mm-hmm. He wanted sex without a condom with the person before me, with maybe the other concurrent people that he might be going to bed with. He's asking me to put aside my policy, my barrier protection policy, in order to have unprotected sex. I'm not willing to do that. If he is willing to do that with someone he's just met, then it means he's willing to do that with anyone he wants to go to bed with and has done it with other people who also were willing to have condomless sex. I'm pouring my water all over you now, getting my excitement about this topic. Those people have been willing to have condomless sex with their other partners and so on. So he might be bringing me several dozen people that I'm going to bed with if I accept that with him. So I'm going to say no, mm-hmm. no, I, every time with everyone, we're not in a, an exclusive relationship. We just met, we're having our first sex. Uh, no, I, what, we, we're going to use condoms and we're going to make it really erotic. Because mm. there we are. I can show you how. Look I, at that. That I, makes me want to pull out a condom. See? Yeah. Yeah. I can show you how I put one on with my mouth. Would you like to experience that? Sadly, I did not get to experience that, but having met Joan Price, I can only imagine the wonderfulness it must be. You can learn about that and much more, including a demonstration for how one actually does that in her Safer Sex for Seniors webinar, which you can find on YouTube. Standing up for ourselves and our well-being isn't the only reason Joan feels using protection every time is important. If I'm dating multiple people, either concurrently or consecutively, I want to be able to say to the next person, I have only had sex with condoms with my previous partners. Mm. That's a powerful thing to be able to say. Isn't it a powerful thing to be able to say? I don't want to have to say, and I'm honest, so I would have to say this, oh, well, I want to have use condoms with you, but since you're asking, well, there are a few people along, I usually use condoms, there are a few people along me. No. I want to say that since my exclusive relationship, I've only used condoms, or I have only used, I have only gone without condoms when it was a relationship that where we were fluid bonded for very good reasons. So what is fluid bonding? It's basically an agreement between partners in a relationship to practice unprotected sex in which your fluids freely mingle about. Some people feel it enhances intimacy, though you can totally have awesome intimacy while using protection too, especially when protection is used for self-care, safety, and respect for yourself and for others. If you do go the fluid bonding route, it's super important to make sure that you've had the most comprehensive possible STD and STI testing from your doctor. Not all doctors test for as many as possible. And regardless, it should be a well-thought-out, openly-talked-about decision. As Joan and I were talking about safe sex as a mainstay, it occurred to me how powerfully these steps might benefit us beyond our girl boners. I love how confidently we say these things. It is, it is inspiring. It's, it tells me also that it's a muscle that if you work that in your intimate sexual life, yes, you'll have more confidence 
yes. setting barriers and standing up for yourself yes. and being respectful to people in the rest of your life. Absolutely. And I teach people to practice the conversation. Mm-hmm. I give them in that in that webinar several ways you can approach this. Um, anything from your condoms are mine mm-hmm. to I only have sex with a condom. We have uh, a preference is to brand. You have your favorites or would you like to use mine? Um, mm. That's great. And like yeah. you said, no matter where we are yeah. in our journeys, that's that's really powerful. Yeah. That's so powerful. So I teach people to practice saying that because my way isn't going to be your way. It isn't going to be a listener's way. But if you practice saying it, practice it in front of a mirror, practice it recording it mm-hmm. on your phone or on, on, on a recorder, practice it until it just comes naturally and easily. And if someone, and if he says this, you'll say that. So for example, he says, "Well, I can't have sex without a with I can't have sex with a condom. It's not sexy." And I'll say, "Is no sex with no condom sexier?" <laughs> I love that, and I could see role playing with a friend as well. If the two yes, of you want to work on absolutely. this in your lives and just yeah. see and and give each other reactions, because yeah. we've all heard different things like. I don't function as well with a condom. It, it holds me back, yeah. this or that. And you have, you've practiced responses. And, yes, and absolutely. They're positive responses too. And another part to this is we don't have to have penetrator sex at all. We can have glorious sex without penetration at mm-hmm. all. Don't want to use a condom? Okay, then here's what we'll do. That is such an excellent point, right? Even if P in V penetration or P in a penetration is your favorite. There are many ways to experience similar sensations. Bring out some toys, a vibrator, or a dildo. Get busy with your hands or your mouths. Around this time in my chat with Joan, she said, Would you like to see my clitoris? I knew she wasn't talking about her actual clitoris, but loved how delighted she seemed saying that. Then she pulled something out of her suitcase. It was wrapped in this red silky material that turned out to be panties and inside indeed was a clitoris a 3d clitoris in fact as she playfully unwrapped then described the various parts of this educational tool she uses i couldn't help but wonder look at how far you have gone from learning that thing right and that's incredible do you ever think back to the little girl you were. Oh, all the time. And just think, what would you say to her now? Oh, my God. I would say the best is ahead of you. Mm. Learn, learn, learn. Don't assume that what you're taught now is going to have any relevance in a while. You're going to take charge on your own. It's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that. Uh, you are going to take charge on your own, and you're going to become your own person, and it's going to be strong, powerful. You're going to be a powerful voice. Mm. So I would not have had any idea of that when I was just trying, oh, really? How, how, what will make you come? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit about the progression sure. and, and some of the turning points that led you to do this work. All right. Um, well, of course, I learned a lot about myself over the years. And in college and after college, and then really through my 40s, became quite a wild child in experiencing everything that my parents didn't want me to experience and realizing they were just damn wrong. They were damn wrong. I am, uh, in 
During the time I was growing up, my father, who was an obstetrician and a gynecologist, he separated the good girls from the bad girls because he saw the bad girls in his office when they got pregnant. Mm. There wasn't reliable birth control or was yeah. easy to get. So eventually the so-called, in quotes, bad girls got pregnant and ended up in his office where it wasn't even legal to terminate the pregnancy. Mm. This, yeah. is, this was the 50s. Wow. While I was, um, when was it? It was early college. The pill appeared. The capital P pill appeared. Before that, it was condoms or diaphragms. What did you think when you heard of the pill? Oh, wow, really? I can have sex without the fear of getting pregnant? Bring it on. There were problems with the pill, but I didn't care. You know, I didn't know. I didn't care. I just thought, oh, sexual freedom. And the pill really equaled sexual freedom for my generation. It's huge. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, huge. Huge. Having control over your own yes. reproductive system. Yes. So at the time, of course, this was no protection against STIs, or as they were called at the time, venereal diseases. Which sounds even more Oh, it really sounds fatal, doesn't it? It really does. Mm -hmm. So onward and onward, I become in love with my sexual self, in love with all the people that I can enjoy that with, and it's funny that at the, maybe at the time there was this, uh, what's the difference between sexually free and promiscuous? Well, pr promiscuous is someone who's having uh, more partners than you are. It, it was just sort of a, you know, who knew? Who cared? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> so arbitrary. I know. So in a way, it was the sexual revolution. I was a little, a little ahead of the boomers. But that doesn't mean I didn't profit from what they did. <laughs> because they're okay, just because I'm already in my twenties doesn't mean I can't be a, a or in my thirties I can't I can be a boomer too. I can be part of the sexual revolution. I can be a foot soldier in the sexual revolution. Then um, the whole idea of the sexual revolution, though, meant it was more for men than for women. Because now, instead of us being expected not to have sex, we were expected to have sex with anyone who wanted to have sex with us. So was the pill arguably created for men then? <laughs> no, but we didn't know how to use it for ourselves. We, didn't, we had to learn not just that we could have sex with anyone we wanted, we could. We had to learn. We didn't have to have sex with anyone we didn't want to. That you had autonomy, and that yes, you... we had autonomy, mm -hmm. and that sexual pleasure could be our demand. Ah, uh, <laughs> which wasn't such a. I mean, that's a learning curve for everyone, yeah. depending on what they learned, where they are. Not everyone was probably in the same free space, perhaps that you were. Right. Right. And. Um, so it became sort of you'd have sex with someone, and then if they were good sexually for you, then you would have sex with that person again. If not, you'd go on to someone else. Well, okay. But it, 
that sort of worked. But what didn't work was the assumption that our pleasure, our pleasure as vulva owners, was secondary to the pleasure of the penis owners. Mm. And so we still didn't have, and feminism was, so now here comes feminism. Okay, next comes feminine. I think it's amazing. I've lived through all these eras, don't you? It's incredible. You're such an awesome resource. I'm just realizing all the eras I lived through. <laughs> so there were the 50s, then there were the 60s. Now we're getting through the 70s. So now feminism is saying that our pleasure can come first. Not as an afterthought, not as a maybe if our partner is, doesn't mind. <laughs> but it can come first. Mm. And we can reach that on our own. We can be our own agents of orgasm. We can buy a magic. Do you know I bought my first magic wand in the personal care section of Macy's? Was it a back massager at the time? Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But it was yeah. clear. I mean, everyone knew what the magic wand was for. It was the little secret, right? They didn't market it that way. They didn't market it that way. They marketed it for massage. And we put the wink, wink and massage. So then I became, I think, sexually empowered, I'd call it. And how do, how do you define that? I define that as understanding my sexuality, celebrating my sexuality, and being... And choosing my sexual partner's character. Good answer. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. 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 You, you radiate that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So you became sexually empowered. And sexually adventuresome. Mm. But in a different way than the 60s. Now in the 70s and in the 80s. Is that what I'm... I'm losing track of time, but that's. I think yeah, you were in the, you had just talked about the seventies, so feminism mm -hmm, in the seventies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that pleasure was now yes. yours first. Oh, and another thing that was happening at that point was an understanding of open relationships. We didn't have the word polyamory at that point, but we had opened up our relationships, and we did that, and that was pretty interesting. We learned how to talk about sex. Oh, yeah. Well, that was such a big part of that. So through all of this? Yes. And, and no one was really talking through, about it? Well, we were your talking friends. about it, but not knowing, not, not as a sex educators might talk about it the way we do now. We were more talking titillation instead of talking education or self-revelation. Like this awesome night you had or maybe a problem you had, but not, yeah. not yeah. education. Yeah. Yeah. So we were learning how to educate ourselves and learning how to talk to each other, not just to talk to a sex partner, but how to set, talk to our friends or how to talk to um, other people who might have more information than we did. Mm. How, seeking out resources. Mm. That was pretty cool. And you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about my personal journey. That doesn't mean our whole generation marched in tune to that same sure. journey. No. Just as, as now, we have people yeah. who have not discovered certain things. Yeah. And, yeah, and I hear from people all the time who say, I was in a monogamous relationship for the past 45 years. Uh, either I divorced or I lost my spouse. or And I'm trying to learn now. I'm spreading my wings for the first time. Mm. Or I have always 
I believe, because I've always believed, I'm quoting someone, this is not me, uh, that that sex has to happen within the context of marriage or a religious approval. That's not over. We didn't annihilate that. No, I still of, hear that from a lot yeah. of people in their 20s yeah. who tell me that they, mm-hmm. yeah, they think that they yeah. are bad people for having sex. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying my way is the only way that you have to go on this kind of journey and discover yourself, but it can't hurt. And we learn so much from other people's journeys, I yes, think. And the yes. fact that you have become this renowned sex educator. As I mentioned to you, I've been following your work online. You have Naked at Our Age on Facebook is a wonderful yes. resource. Thank you. And I'm so inspired by the vibrancy you bring to this conversation because, again, I think it it's something that also touches on the ageism that we have yeah. in all facets of, oh, yes. of life. Oh, yes. And when we can go, oh, if we can have these amazing sex lives, what else is possible? Yes. I mean, I have yes. chills. Joan said that as she approached menopause, she started to feel invisible. Something I've heard from many people, especially women. Specifically, she found that men she normally would have dated or engaged sexually with were barely noticing her. I could dedicate an episode or many episodes to this subject, and I may do that. For now, though, I'll share this. So much of this kind of ageism derives from our youth-obsessed culture. At least for those of us in the U.S., we are taught that sexiness has an age limit, especially for women and femmes, and that for a man to be manly and not, quote, too old, whatever that means himself, that he should stay not only horny all the time, but lust over younger folks more as his age increases. But guess what? We don't actually lose beauty, sexiness, or sexuality with age. Also, the notion that most older men want far younger partners is a myth, and even less of a thing in countries that celebrate aging. In a recent study conducted in Finland involving thousands of adults, it showed that while older straight men do tend to find younger women attractive, they find older women equally attractive. Older women, on the other hand, were a bit pickier, generally preferring men much closer to their own age. So, gals, maybe we have a little work to do there. And as I mentioned before, we can actually have more fulfilling sex lives, however we define that, which has nothing to do, by the way, with like frequency or anything. It's more about having experiences that we love, that make us feel authentic, whether that's intercourse or cuddling or making out or, you know, every day or once a month or once a year, whatever that means. It can increase and become more positive with age, and Joan is living proof of this. After feeling a little invisible, things really started to turn around for her in ways that could make anyone swoon. In fact, get ready for that. I had the great honor and joy of meeting the man who would become my great love. His name was Robert Rice, his last name and mine off by one letter. So that was confusing to people once we became a couple. But we we took a long time between meeting and first kiss was nine months. Not by my wish. I mean, you're you're talking to someone whose idea is that the only problem with instant gratification is it takes too long. <laughs> and here I was trying to, powerfully attracted 
to this man who was 64 when we met. I was 57. He was 64. He was an artist, very contemplative, quiet man who believed that anything worth doing was worth taking plenty of time. <laughs> In many ways, we would not imagine. <laughs> so you had the yin-yang oh, opposites attract. I pursued him for nine months. And the story of that is in my first senior sex book, Better Than I Ever Expected, Straight Talk About Sex After 60. Our love story is the framework for that book. Mm. Well, finally, once we had our first kiss, we didn't stop kissing. Mm. Uh, we became a couple. We eventually married. And we were together for seven years to the day, first kiss to last kiss. Yes, to the day, until I lost him to cancer. Mm, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It was during the time we were together that I changed careers. I had been first a high school English teacher, then a health and fitness writer and instructor. And of course, I pull all that with me in <laughs> what I do now. But when Robert and I were together, particularly in the first couple of years of our relationship, our sexual interaction was so hot, so exhilarating, so, oh my God, why didn't anyone tell us it could be like this? And I'd already written some books about health and fitness, and I'm looking for, there must be books about this kind of experience. I didn't find it. I think now there are. There weren't then. So Robert said, well, you're the writer, write your own. And I said, all right, I will. <laughs> I had no idea that, I, that this would become my life wow. from then on. So at age 61, Better Than I Ever Expected was published. And since that, so for 13 years, I've been writing and speaking out loud about senior sex. And this is, this is my beat. <laughs> and I love it. And when Robert knew he was dying, he said to me, your work is so important. Promise me you'll keep doing your work. Mm. And I said, I'll promise you anything you want if you just don't die. And he said, I don't have control over that, but you have control over whether you keep doing your work and people need you. So I'll always remember that conversation. I will too. Oh, thank you. And we're both crying now. Yeah, that, wow. Joan said everything she does now is in Robert's honor. Thankfully, he did live to see the publication of her first book, Better Than I Expected. He was also very much featured in the book. And remember what we said about the two of them being fairly opposite? He being very quiet and very private. First, when I was writing it, I said, you know, if I'm writing this book, it's about you. And he said, oh, don't call me, don't name me Robert, call me Fred. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to, because if I do, everyone who knows us will think I'm having an affair with Fred. <laughs> and everyone who doesn't know us, well, what difference does it make? So you used his... Yes, I used his real name. Yeah. And he then... When the book first came out, 
I was very excited because it was going to be reviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle magazine, which was um, you know, the big newspaper in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they had, at that time on Sunday, they had a magazine with it. It was going to be reviewed and I was so thrilled that we, we waited until midnight when the paper deliveries came on Saturday nights, so we could buy the first issue. I open it and it says, now that boomers have discovered their sex after 60, could they please stop writing about it? <gasps> How dare they? How did that feel? I was devastated. Hmm. And Robert was too. He went, I just realized how important this is. The validation that, that yeah. this is necessary. This is necessary. The ick factor is alive and well. Mm -hmm. I The next day, I was scheduled to give a speech, a book talk, at Book Passage in uh, Corte Madero, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's in Marin County. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful independent bookstore that supports authors many authors' events. And I thought, everybody gets the Chronicle. What's going to happen when they read this? No one will show up. So I get to my event. It's packed. They keep pulling in chairs. Then they have people sitting in the hallway because there are no more chairs that fit in the room. And I held up the San Francisco Chronicle magazine. I said, how many of you read this? Everybody. And there they were. There they were, and I said, so I have an answer for her. Now that boomers have discovered their sex after 60, will they please stop writing about it? Hell no. <laughs> We've just begun to talk. Fuel for the fire. And I didn't know how true that was. Yeah. I thought I would write that one book, and, and everything would then be expanded and fine. I've now written... <laughs> three senior sex books and edited a senior sex uh, erotica anthology. I, and I do a column on seniorplanet.org. I have a blog that's been going for the full 13 years. Um, I have webinars. It's a huge world out there now that I'm... You've built an empire. I love that. You're the second one this weekend who said I built an empire. Well, now you need it on a t-shirt, <laughs> on your business card. My name is Joan Price. I have built an empire. <laughs> I want that shirt. What is one thing that you want younger generations to understand about sexuality? I want you, I'll dress you as you now, these younger listeners, that you are seniors in training if you're lucky. You know, there, there are two ways you can go. You can get old or you can die young. There, I don't know another option. If there is one, let me know. So let's say you're choosing to get old. Then you are now seniors in training. I have a webinar called 12 Steps to Sexy Aging. And this is about what you can do now, now, whether you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 18, to ensure that you age with the with a vivacious and voracious sexuality. And I've learned so much. I learn every week I learn something more. Mm. I learn from my readers, I learn from my colleagues, I learn from the people who support me and uh, wonderful people like you who do podcasts or articles and 
Um, I am very proud to be <laughs> sitting on this empire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm really happy to be helping people yeah. to be able to say, listen, just with the right education, a sense of adventure, and a sense of humor, hmm. you can age with great sexual va va voom. Thanks again, Joan, for all you do. For more of her wonderfulness, everyone, visit her blog, nakedatouragecom or joanprice.com to find all kinds of clickable fun. For wisdom from Joan in your inbox, subscribe to her newsletter. Now for a very thoughtful question from a listener. I received this from Maria, who identifies as bisexual and queer. I left my husband last year. We were married for a year and had been together a year and a half before that. We had a pretty toxic, codependent relationship, and there was no room for me or my needs. I could see that was never going to change. I made one of the hardest and most immediate relieving decisions I've ever made to leave him. Since then, I seem to meet someone, get really excited for a couple of weeks, and then not excited, and then end things. Either they show me something about themselves that is something I want to opt out of, or I get scared and decide I'm not ready for long-term commitment and bail. Is it wrong for me to want to date casually and not commit? Does that make me just as awful as some shitty dude? Is it even possible to date casually and just have it stay casual? I'm not even sure if that exists. Since it's been less than a year since my divorce, I'm, am I just rushing into things? Am I trying to move on too fast? I don't want to leave a path of destruction in my dating life. Should I just try really hard not to date for a while? Maria. Maria also added that she's also wondering, is she polyamorous? Does she does she want to try, you know, potentially having relationships with more than one person? She's got a lot of questions swirling around, and I think they're all really important. I'll share why I personally relate to this experience and her story shortly here. But first, here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Maria, thanks so much for this question, and I know there are going to be so many other listeners who are going to benefit as well. Um, first of all, I want to say that it's never easy to make a decision to end a marriage, and that, however, when we're in a toxic one, one in which, as you said, your needs, there was no room for you or your needs, that's not sustainable. You know, it's one thing if it's um, going through a particular life challenge where, of course, we may give up some of our needs. Um, for the immediate benefit of a partner. But when you're in a toxic relationship where you're, in a sense, subjugating or coming under the domination of someone else, um, that is definitely not sustainable if there's no possibility for growth and change. So, again, first and foremost, I'm glad that you um, took that step on behalf of yourself. Now, one of the questions I want to come back to, sort of the heart of the matter, I think, in your question is, you know, what's the right um, time for dating and what's too soon and how many partners. And first I kind of want to say, you know, there's no gold standard here and it's very um, definitely depends on everybody's individual situation. But there's a few things I'd want you to invite you to consider and look at. And one is, you know, did you actually give yourself time after the breakup of your marriage to be on your own before sort of jumping into dating? Or did you find sort of the feelings that were coming up really difficult to face and to manage and that dating became a distraction? Um, you know, I often also see that sometimes people, when they're in a toxic relationship, it's almost they find, um, it could be a friend or a close colleague, and there's a flirtation. And part of that feeling that 
someone's paying attention to them and there's that sexual tension and energy is almost a catalyst um, that makes them feel as if this is the right choice in terms of the decision to divorce or to separate. That being said, you know, if you already have somebody who is, you know, those feelings have emerged and are emerging, you've never really given yourself time to be on your own. So that is a question I have, is whether or not you feel like you've given yourself that time and really inviting anybody who's listening, that the healthy um, aspects, even though it can be incredibly uncomfortable, but really standing your ground and on your own two feet, feeling really centered, strong, independent, knowing you can handle things on your own, I think is in many ways a prerequisite to be in a relationship because when you're feeling solid in yourself, it's then you can choose another person. When you don't have a solid sense of who you are, I think we're more vulnerable to losing ourselves or parts of ourselves in our relationship. I can attest to this because I have been there. Maria, much of your letter could have been taken from my old diary pages. I too left a toxic codependent marriage in my early 20s. So first, let me add my kudos. The rewards you will gain from staying true to yourself and choosing a much healthier, more vibrant path, even when it's scary and hard, the rewards will go beyond your wildest imaginings. I really believe that. But it does take time. And like you said, you're really new in this part of the journey. So back then, I was not as thoughtful as you are being with dating. And I ended up in a rebound relationship pretty quickly that turned out to be really hurtful. And I don't say that to scare you off at all. I only want to say, I think, yay, it's awesome that you want to date casually. Maybe if I had done that, I would have saved myself from a lot of pain. I think it's also really important to consider, what are you seeking from dating? Like, do you really want to date casually? And if so, is it to have fun and meet people? If so, I think that's awesome. If, like me, though, you were raised believing that all relationships have to be super serious and basically premarital, I would take some time to just really look inward and make sure that you're not actually on some level seeking like a future spouse or the equivalent of what that might be or trying to force yourself into some sort of relationship scenario. Does that make sense? You know, if you end up meeting a partner or multiple partners and discovering that you're more polyamorous along the way, that's awesome. But I think making that a byproduct that may happen one day versus a goal could be really important. And that's not easy because it's one of those things that you have to sort of get comfortable with the uncomfortable and and the not knowing. But I promise you, it's such an, a powerful way to go about it. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say about your dating questions specifically. You know, I'm hearing sort of what is very common, you know, there's sort of um, the cool people and not very cool people and that dating in of itself is a process, right? That, you know, it's not always the most fun and, you know, we don't always feel like we're investing our time well because, uh, what's the expression? You know, you have to kiss a lot of toads before you meet the prince or princess in this case or whatever. Um, again, and from a place of sexual fluidity, um, or identifying yourself as bisexual or queer, you know, it's really waiting for that person where you have chemistry. And then what I'm hearing you say is that and when you do, it's not uncommon you've noticed this pattern that you're excited for the first few weeks, which again is sort of the uh, drug cocktail, the dopamine, the oxytocin, uh, but then you're getting not so excited and ending things. And so I guess it's a part of me that wants you to be curious about that pattern, which is, you know, is it 
just that they've shown you something which, again, is a flag and a quality that's um, a non-negotiable that you know couldn't be in a sustainable relationship, or is it also potentially you know based out of fear of moving further, and it just is a way of you know opting out and. So I think around that, you just have to be curious to see what is the pattern and noticing, is it like, again, the first time you feel disappointment with that person or first time you're asked to go out of your comfort zone and maybe then it becomes a fear of, you know, if I say yes to that um, and I lean in, am I going to lose my sense of self and get into another unhealthy or codependent relationship? You know, there's, I think, a lot of complexities around that to unpack. Um, but that then when you find someone like you are now, um, to, you know, really take that step back and ask, what is it I really want? Because only you can decide when you're feeling ready to settle down and commit. Um, and I certainly think having multiple and many partners, um, you know, the book I would recommend is The Ethical Slut. Um, it's actually in its third edition now by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton, because Listen, we should, without any slut shaming, enjoy our sexuality, our exploration, figuring out our turn-ons, our needs. Um, and ultimately, only you can decide when you're ready for um, a level of commitment and what that, what that meaning of commitment brings up for you. Um, so I think you really want to not, um, you know, sort of shortcut this process, really take the time to notice as you are the feelings that you're having, what's coming up, what are patterns, what are fears. And honestly, if you haven't been in therapy, strongly suggested. I think that uh, having a guide through the process of knowing ourselves and understanding our patterns and often um, the repetition of patterns that we're not always even so conscious of, working with a therapist can be incredibly helpful in helping us to establish healthy relationships in whatever form those look like. So that's what I really encourage you, that it's great that you're asking this question. Listen, have fun, play, be curious about why you lose interest and what might be going on there, what that might be bringing up for you. Um, and just, you know, letting, letting things sort of unfold um, and letting your experience sort of inform you. As always, can't wait to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I think my top advice for you, Maria, and for anyone out there who is wondering if dating or relationship makes sense right now is this. Focusing on yourself for a while, whether you date meanwhile or not, might be the best way to go. When we focus on taking care of ourselves, asking ourselves what we want for our lives, you know, beyond relationships and taking steps toward those goals helps everything else come together. So for me, as an example, at the time, I focused on my acting career. So when I was in that toxic rebound relationship, I had this other passion and focusing there and really working on myself and going, okay, I know that I need to do this for me. I need to see what what is in this path for me and taking my classes and you know, pursuing moving to Los Angeles is what I was thinking of at the time, and I did. All of those things kept me going and really helped kind of clarify my path for me. And because I did that, that led to not only Los Angeles, but to my writing career, to Girl Boner, and later to the awesome partnership I have now. And that relationship feels like a reward for the work I've done in my life. So 
I know it's cliche, but it's also often true, I think, that love finds us when we aren't even seeking it. I also asked Joan Price just to share a few words with you, Maria, because she's so wise and has so much uh, wonderful experience to draw from with, with dating and with all kinds of relationships, and she shared this. She said, sure, you can date casually. That sounds wise. You've just emerged from a toxic relationship where you didn't get a chance to be fully yourself. How can you know who that person is if you jump into another commitment right away? Give yourself permission to date, to learn about other people, and to learn about yourself. That excitement you feel at the beginning of a new relationship is normal and thrilling. Be upfront with the people you date that you're not exploring and not ready to get in a committed relationship for a while. Then, when you want to end it with someone, do it cleanly and with respect and kindness. Beautifully said, Joan. I love what she said about, you know, dating to get to know yourself more. Have fun. Go out and try new things and, and see what happens. But know that being upfront with people and first and foremost with yourself about what you are hoping to gain from the experience can be really, really helpful. Thank you again, Maria, for that question. We are wishing you and everyone in a similar place the very best. If you have a question for me or for Dr. Megan, hit us back on social media. Drop us a note on our websites, augustmclaughlin.com or greatlifegreatsex.com. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you will subscribe through Apple Podcasts where you can also leave us a simple review. You can also follow along on Spotify and sign up for those extras at augustmclaughlin.com. Don't forget to head to Amazon and pre-order Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, releasing August 7th. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.